The primary purpose of the matter over mind experience is to educate. It doesn't constitute advice or services. Before making any changes, please consult a medical or dietary professional. Nutrition, gut health, mental health, hormones, and so much more. These all play roles in sustainable weight management. So, I scour the globe for top experts in fitness, health, and weight loss to bring to you this podcast. So, take a seat and enjoy the ride. Welcome to another episode of the Matter Over Mind Experience. I am your host, Master Trainer and weight management expert, Narado Zico Powell. And I have a dear friend on the episode today, the gut pharmacist, Riley Romasco. This is the second time she's on my podcast, but the first time on my YouTube. Everybody knows my YouTube has been up for, what, two months now? But if you didn't listen to the first episode, we talked about GERD, acid reflux, heartburn, Habits that lead up to it and habits that can help you if you experience any of those. So go back and list that episode. It's on Spotify, Apple, Google, wherever you listen to your podcast, right? But in today's episode, we're going to talk about deep causes of illness, common habits that lead to acid reflux, signs of nutrition deficiency, and a whole lot more. And you know your boy never disappoints. We have a hack at the episode. What are anti-nutrients? How do they impact our health? And how can we prepare our food to remove them? We have a lot, of, a lot to unpack today. And with that being said, let's welcome our friend Riley to the show. Hey, Riley, how are you doing today? Oh, so good. It's good to be back. It's been, I think, a year now. But man, time flies. Thank you for having me on again for part two. Thanks for reminding me that I'm a year old. I really appreciate that. Your boy, <laughs> a year your boy, older, your boy, I know. <laughs> I, I know, right? Your boy turned 40 a couple months ago. Look at that. You know, I'm Yay. growing up. But Riley, tell my audience about yourself. Yeah, so I'm a functional naturopath, and I specialize in gut disorders and chronic illness. I work 100% remotely all over the USA, sometimes Canada too, depending on the client. And I mostly work one-on-one, but I also have a independent Harmonize Your Gut program, which is available worldwide and it's very affordable. Um, But basically I help people find wellness with root cause approaches, functional labs, and the beauty of nature, which is, has given us so many things to use, but I'm mostly concerned about causes rather than labels and symptoms. So rather than being so focused on the diagnosis or the label, I care more about the underlying causes and basically help people find wellness through those approaches. I love that. See, everybody, this is why she's one of my favorite people in the whole world, right? Because this is awesome. This is what I like to hear because oftentimes we do get caught up in the labels and the the doctors say, you know, let's give you a pill for this ill to try to see if we can overcome the symptoms without focusing on the root causes. So we have a lot. We do have a lot to unpack today. And Riley, with that being said, why do traditional labs tend to miss the deep, the deep, true causes of illness? Yeah. So 
it's mostly how we use the labs. So we have conventional labs and functional labs. Functional labs are mostly utilized by more alternative practitioners like naturopaths, chiropractors, nutritionists, integrative medicine, functional medicine, et cetera. Whereas conventional labs are usually utilized by traditional physicians and they are mostly focused on specific symptoms and they don't always have the ability to look at the whole picture. Sometimes they do. It just depends on how the physician uses the labs. But most of the time, it's just searching for symptoms, finding a label, getting a treatment, et cetera. So basically, we have to remember that we can't just look at the person on paper. We also have to look at the person in front of us. So the symptoms, the health history, all the patterns that show up on various labs, what are these root causes? What are these puzzle pieces that we can put together? So functional labs are aimed at finding these root causes and to get a more complete picture of the health story. So functional labs are usually a mixture of blood, saliva, stool, urine, sometimes hair, whereas conventional labs are usually just blood work or sometimes very invasive scopes and scans and things like that. But the data that is collected with functional labs can assess multiple body systems and just give us more information than just simple blood work, which we know blood work or blood markers, they change all the time, daily, sometimes multiple times a day. So it's not the most accurate form of what's going on in the body at this time, as long as, you know, unless we use other labs to verify that. But basically, I'm talking a lot. We just have more information with functional labs and more hints as to what the root causes of the imbalances are. And another thing, too, there's also standardized ranges versus optimal ranges. Usually physicians use standardized ranges, which are those very broad ranges. They're a lot bigger than optimal ranges. And these are based on the average individual. And I know you and your audience know, if we look at the average individual, they're not very healthy. So these traditional ranges are based on a population of average or unhealthy individuals, whereas optimal ranges are based on healthy individuals. And so basically, if you want to get healthy, you probably want your labs to correlate with a healthy population. So that's the gist of it. Basically, I use functional labs. So it's a mixture of like organic acid tests, urine mycotoxin tests, stool tests, sebo breath tests, urine toxic metals. And we like to use at least two to three just to get a complete picture. But that was the gist of it there. <laughs> I love the gist. I love the gist because what I'm hearing is you don't want to be normal. You want to be optimal, right? So Correct. the doctors look yes. at you, let's say your thyroid, for example, and say, hey, your thyroid, your TSH is normal. But if the normal is unhealthy, then really and truly you're not being optimal. You may still be having an issue there that you're not addressing. Is that what I'm hearing? Exactly right. Yeah. And most physicians are still using standardized ranges and comparing these people to standard people, which are usually unhealthy, as we know. So then let's talk about habits, right? Because I said in the beginning, we're going to talk about acid reflux. So a lot of us have a lot of bad habits talking about being normal that lead to acid reflux. What are these habits? Yeah, well, first, I do want to make it clear, reflux is so common, and the main line of treatment is suppressing acid production. But reflux is actually not 
due to high acid. We blame the acid and we suppress the acid, but acid isn't the actual cause of the reflux. It's the byproduct. So instead of focusing on stopping acid production, we need to focus on why the acid is getting in the wrong place. So usually it's a mixture of things, pressure, pH, motility, microbial, other factors like nervous system imbalance, and of course, lifestyle, like I'll talk about shortly. So common lifestyle habits that can increase the risk of reflux are rushed, distracted eating. So eating in a stress state. Uh, I think my last podcast with you, I talked about the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system, the gut brain connection. So we know that eating in a stress state does not optimize digestion. So digestive secretions don't flow. Motility doesn't go as well. The body is focused on stress and getting out of this stress situation rather than digestion. So rushed eating, eating, you know, between meetings or phone calls, eating in a stress state does not optimize digestion and can increase the risk of reflux. Also, of course, nutrition. So processed nutrient deficient foods take away from our own nutrient stores and that can affect digestive functions. And also acidic and spicy foods, they can worsen reflux, but I want to make it clear that they don't cause reflux because there's so many people who eat acid and spicy foods and they don't have reflux. So there is a correlation that it can worsen reflux, but there's not a direct causation. So with lifestyle factors, we talked about stressed eating. So some basic things that we can do, just taking three deep belly breaths before you eat, getting out of that stressed mode, allowing digestion to start activating. Also chewing 20 to 30 times. Chewing is so overlooked and forgotten, but our stomach doesn't have teeth. So we need to make sure that we chew, chew, chew at least 20 to 30 times that way, the digestive juices can cover all the particles of food. The food is smaller in volume, so that will reduce pressure in the stomach, also reduce the risk of reflux. And then another thing, which is a very bad habit for most people, and I address this, one of the first things I address with clients is drinking while eating. So it's a culture thing. Most people drink while they're eating. Uh, whether it's water or any other drink, this actually increases the pressure in the stomach and it also dilutes digestive enzymes, stomach acid. So the food can just sit there undigested, increasing in volume, fermenting, therefore increasing pressure and reflux. So that was a mouthful, but basically we want to calm our nervous system before we eat, chew a lot more, making sure we break down that food and don't drink with meals. I like to recommend waiting 10 minutes. Um, so stop drinking 10 minutes before we eat and then waiting at least an hour after. Now that can be hard for some people. So we just have to do the best we can. If we just even drink less while we're eating, take smaller sips, that can go a long way too. Overall, we just want to make sure the digestion is optimized. We're not in a stress state and we reduce the pressure in the stomach. I'm glad that you mentioned the 10 minutes and the hour after, because after our last interview, I had multiple people reach out to me and said, well, then when, how, when should I stop drinking? And when should I drink after? Cause I don't think we actually addressed it in the last interview. So mm. I'm glad you brought it up. So 10 minutes before, at least an hour after, is there a difference why you say 10 minutes before and an hour after instead of like 30 and 30 or something like that? 
Yeah. So if the stomach is empty, which hopefully it is before you eat again, <laughs> we don't want to be overeating, but if the stomach is empty and the digestive system is pretty empty, it's been at least a couple hours since we've eaten or snacked. Generally water gets taken in within five to 10 minutes in the intestine. So if it's again, empty, it's going to go a lot quicker, but if your stomach or your intestines are still full of food, it is going to take longer for that water to be taken up. So hopefully that makes sense. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense because a lot, I've had people say, when I, I drink after I eat and I feel bloated because you're probably still full and you're still in the middle of, you know, the early parts of digestion when you're trying to drink. So that does make yeah. sense, you know, and, but you really put in a nice, pretty bowl for us. I mean, don't eat and fight at the same time. Be in rest and digest. I always say that fight and flight, rest and digest. Who fights and eats at the same time? Nobody does. So take three breaths. I, I just do a couple of little different things. I may play a song on my guitar, which is right behind me or one of my other guitars before, before I eat. Or if I'm not playing a song, then I would do some type of breathing exercise before I eat. Chew your food. Jamaicans, and this ties into the drinking thing because everybody knows, you know, yes, man, I am Jamaican. And, you know, <laughs> and we don't talk like that. Everybody lets you know we hate. Most Jamaicans can't stand the movie Cool Runnings because we don't talk like that. But seriously, my friends who say to me, especially my Jamaican friends, I will I will choke if I, uh, if I, um, if I don't drink when I eat. I say, well, you're eating too fast because you're not chewing your food, which leads to the right. other problem, right? So there you go. So if you slow down, chew your food and drink, you can actually, you don't need to drink with your meals. And those habits together can help with acid reflux and GERD and heartburn and so on and so forth. So thank yeah, you so much exactly. for bringing up all that. Of now, course, the, yeah. The next question I want to talk about, we want to talk about habits again. And I want to talk about estrogen versus progesterone dominance. Explain that to my audience. Yeah, well, estrogen dominance is a lot more common. We see it everywhere. And a while back, I made a post on both because I do also want to talk about progesterone dominance. But um, we'll talk about estrogen dominance first because it's more common. It's from many factors, but we've had a major spike in numbers in recent decades, most likely due to xenoestrogens, which are endocrine mimickers that are found in specific products in the environment, even in the water supply with so many people taking birth control and dumping pills into the water supply. Um, there's just many factors in many ways, but cleaning products, skincare, um, other things that we use in our household, a lot of these chemicals are known as xenoestrogens, which can mimic our own estrogen, but the body doesn't recognize it the same way. So it interferes with normal hormonal processes, basically, but also liver dysfunction, which is very common. Most people have some sort of sluggish liver or liver dysfunction, and it's not going to show up on labs usually until it's too late. But with the USA specifically introducing thousands of chemicals every year, and I think we're over a hundred something thousand chemicals that have been introduced, and it's just a lot of chemicals, the liver is overburdened. So because of that, since the liver has a job of regulating estrogens through something known as the estrobolome and also a liver process called glucuronidation, because the liver function gets slightly impaired, estrogen can start to build up in the system and eventually lead to estrogen dominance. So it's from the 
products we're using. It's from the toxins, but it's also from processed foods too. As always, processed foods can be linked to pretty much everything as we know, but also poor quality meat and dairy. They also have an impact on hormones and all of these things have kind of shifted the body composition of society. And of course, the use of birth control too, synthetic. So estrogen dominance is either when estrogen is higher than normal, or even when progesterone is lower than normal. So you can actually still have estrogen dominance if you have low estrogen. And if your progesterone is a lot lower than it should be, it's really about the proportion there. But typical symptoms are lower weight gain, pear-shaped, usually in women, can also happen in men too. Um, also PMS symptoms, sore breasts before menstruation, uterine fibroids, breast fibroids, heavy menstruation, gallbladder issues, even a history of gallbladder removal surgery, the cholecystectomy, and also bloating, some other symptoms, mood changes. Um, so again, estrogen dominance is more common, but progesterone dominance can also happen, especially when a woman maybe has a history of uh, under eating, over exercise, which can impair estrogen levels. Also, taking synthetic progestin only birth control that can also impair progesterone levels. So, some symptoms of progesterone dominance. Again, it's not as common, but it still happens. And this happens when estrogen is either too low or progesterone is higher than normal. So, these symptoms with progesterone are pain in the legs light or missed menstruation, weight changes, poor bone health, because there's a connection with estrogen and healthy bone absorption, bone reabsorption, and also mood swings, fatigue, bloating. But these symptoms are also with estrogen dominance. So some of these are similar with both. But even girls under the age of 10 are starting to show signs of early puberty, getting menstrual cycles at nine or 10 years old, breast budding, which is a sign of puberty. So society is faced with a huge hormonal problem. And a lot of it can be traced back to these toxins and the products, the environment, the birth control and liver dysfunction, many other things, but the gut liver and brain, those are all involved in regulating the endocrine system. And of course, all other systems, we know everything in the body works together, but primarily gut, liver, and brain. Those are very important for helping to regulate. So as long as we understand the body and we know these risks, then we can start to address the problem. So that was estrogen and progesterone dominance. So I have a follow-up question to that. So because you mentioned females, right? But do males have the same issue with, uh, with this imbalance? Yeah, estrogen dominance can still occur in men. It's more of an abnormal level of estrogen, higher than normal. Men also have very low amounts of estrogen, and women also have low amounts of androgens, testosterone. So we're both different, but we're both also the same. But yes, estrogen dominance can also occur in men, kind of from the same things, the processed foods, the products we're using, um, the drinking water supply, many reasons. So what I'm hearing is that when I'm menstruating, I should stop using feminine hygiene products, right? Okay. Oh gosh. <laughs> yes. <laughs> if we did, I'd have a whole lot more problems than estrogen or progesterone dominance. I'll tell you that. Um, oh, but yes. yes. But uh, yeah, so, but that's really interesting. So what are the, some of the, 
you talked about like natural products, right? Or not really, you talk about products that we use. So what are little basic things that we could do to maybe change or help us in this process? I maybe use more natural products or what, what do you think? Yeah, I one of the main things I also work on with clients is reducing toxic burden because that can contribute to chronic illness and many other things. So I like to use the environmental working group that is a resource, very helpful, helps us find what's in our tap water, helps us get toxicity ratings of many cleaning products, cosmetic products. It's just a very helpful resource. So environmental working group, they also have an app. So you'll just search for various products and it'll give you a rating. Sometimes it's a number rating from one to 10 or A to F uh, letter rating. But if it's an F or if it's a a 10, (laughs) obviously that's something that we need to replace and find better options. And the environmental working group also has resources on making better switches. So overall, we just have to replace the potential toxic products that we're using And the environmental working group is a great resource to make those switches. So any hair care products, cosmetics, makeup, uh, cleaning products, things like that. So and like you said, they also have an app. So you can basically just search environmental working group and get the app as well. So that's super helpful. So thank you so much. Now, let's talk about nutrient deficiency. Because a lot of times, you know, as a trainer, I hear, you know, macros and we talk about fats, carbs, and proteins. Which a lot of people don't fully understand those in, in, in totality. But then nutrient deficiency includes micronutrients as well. So let's talk about what are some signs of nutrient deficiency? Yeah, nutrient <clears throat> deficiency is more common today because the soil is depleted. Processed foods are stripped of nutrients and there are more toxic stressors, even energetic stressors with radiation coming out. So the cells are starting to be under more stress and therefore they will require more nutrients. So we're eating the least amount of nutrients in a time where we need the most nutrients than ever. So it's a huge problem. So signs of nutrient deficiency are, they can be very broad. So fatigue, Skin issues like cracking, peeling, even acne, um, dryness, redness, hair loss as well, brittle nails, spots on the nails, um, weird formations in the nails like ridges, spooning, weakness, generalized muscle weakness, feeling fatigued, lethargic, cracking heels, cracking corner of the mouth, night blindness, chest pain, burning tongue, and then cravings. Cravings are often a sign of nutrient deficiency, like dirt, sand, ice cravings, usually iron deficiency. So in chronic illness in general, it's safe to say that someone with chronic illness or symptoms most likely has some type of nutrient deficiency. And the body is so smart. It always tells us what we need. We just have to listen and understand the messages that it's giving. And I also want to mention that symptoms While they can be annoying, bothersome, or worrisome, symptoms are there to save our life. So they are always there to look out for our best interests. The body always wants to survive, and sometimes it upregulates or downregulates certain functions in the body. But these symptoms are very important, and things like cravings, as I said, can be a sign that we have a specific nutrient deficiency. So for example... Women before their menstrual cycle, they crave chocolate or sweets. 
With chocolate specifically, it's very high in iron, magnesium, and copper. And those are some of the nutrients that are required for healthy menstruation. So there's an example there, but symptoms are just messages from the body. And if we learn and understand how to interpret these messages, we're at a much better place. So is that something you do in your practice then? Is it helping people to basically become, because I'm hearing body awareness, so become more aware with their bodies and, uh, and make adjustments in their nutrition as needed? Yeah, I'm all about education and intuition. Uh, in naturopathy, education is a big piece of it. So empowering the client to understand what's going on in their body and make those changes, they're better likely to stick to those changes and continue healthy habits if they actually understand what's going on in the body and what specific things need attention. So yeah, it's, it's a huge part of my work, education and making people more aware of these things. If nobody uh, has been paying attention, I've been throwing like Riley some curveballs here and she's doing an excellent job. I thought she really knows her stuff, right? She really does know her. She really does know her stuff and Thank she's you. really excellent. That's why I've, I've known her for like a year and a half now. And I've been following her work. I mean, excellent, excellent person, very knowledgeable. She also has an Instagram, which I follow as well. I think it's, what's your Instagram again? It's at gut expert Riley. There we go. Or you could, she, she's one. If you go to my page at Zico health, you can see that she's one of the people that I follow very easy to so follow us both. And you know, it's making it nice and easy. But with that being said, though, we're up to, up to the hack of the episode, right? I mean, you know, I'm really enjoying this, really enjoy this interview and it's so much good information, but we gotta, we gotta come to the hack because we just talked about nutrient deficiencies. Now we're going to talk about anti-nutrients. A lot of people do not know what it is. So explain to my audience, what are anti-nutrients? How do they impact our health? But also, which is so important, how can we prepare our foods to remove some of these anti-nutrients? Yeah, and it might not be the answer that some people are expecting or wanted. So just want to <laughs> announce that first. But plant anti-nutrients are basically these protective chemicals that are secreted and created by plants to ward off dangers. So that's pests, radiation, animals, etc. But plant anti-nutrients are becoming a hot topic in the health space. And while I think there should be some precaution, there's also many nuances that are not being considered. And I think things are being highly overblown. So the thing that people don't realize is that the more stress a plant is under, the more protective chemicals it develops over time. And if we consume those, oftentimes there are, there are actually benefits that we get as well. Maybe some negative too, but mostly benefits. So if we think of an aptogenic herb like ashwagandha, which is to help balance our stress levels, these plants are under specific stressors that cause those chemicals to secrete or those phytochemicals to be created. And we get those same benefits from eating or consuming that plant. So we know ashwagandha is a huge adaptogenic herb. So it helps us modulate stress. That plant being under stress causes those beneficial compounds to be created. So anti-nutrients, they do have some negatives, but there are also many positives. So, and there's a huge cult that's coming out who are completely against eating plants. I think in certain cases, it could be appropriate, but individuality always needs to be considered. So anti-nutrients are only a problem if the individual terrain is imbalanced. And overall, 
there are very small or minor risks compared to the benefits of eating plants. And plus, most anti-nutrients can be removed by cooking, soaking, sprouting, chewing fibers thoroughly, pairing with citrus or bitters, taking enzymes or HCL, and I'll get more in detail at the end with uh, preparation. But anti-nutrients are mainly just a problem if there's things like leaky gut, dysbiosis, mineral imbalances, underlying infections, or detox, anything that causes the body to not eliminate things well. So this buildup of endotoxins, this endotoxemia, that's a huge contributor to symptoms and chronic illness. But at the end of the day, we can't really blame the plants for this buildup that's occurring. It's really the body, the person's body that isn't removing these byproducts correctly. The body always creates negative byproducts, but it's the job of a healthy body to eliminate these properly. So plants maybe add a little extra to that, but they have so many other benefits too. And um, the body knows what to do with it. And if it doesn't, that's when things start to build up and become issues. So common anti-nutrients, oxalates, that's usually found in green foods, um, so water soluble, these are water soluble, so they can be removed by blanching, boiling, steaming, discarding the liquid. Um, so with that, we lose those anti-nutrients, but we also lose some of those good minerals too, right? So it's kind of give and take, uh, with phytates and lectins usually found in grains, soaking or sprouting, fermenting, those are ways to reduce those. And if there's, an issue with mineral malabsorption, like with oxalates and calcium compensating can, you can compensate with this by adding things like vitamin C. So citrus, a squeeze of lemon with your greens or bitters. So there are ways to modify and adapt the body to handle these anti-nutrients better. But again, animal foods are important. They just don't have fiber. Fiber is so beneficial for us. It's, well, technically it's not really for us. It's for the microbiome. So that those good bacteria in the gut, but also to balance cholesterol, estrogens, like we talked about. So plants do have anti-nutrients, but there are so many other benefits from plants. Animal foods are more bioavailable. Yes, but Again, they don't have fiber. So, and it depends on the person's individual terrain. If there is a problem with oxalate buildup, uh, oftentimes we see that happening in a person who doesn't really eat too many oxalate foods. So really we have to consider so many factors and it always comes down to the individual terrain overall. You know, I've recently unfollowed some of my carnivore friends on uh, Instagram because I was, it was becoming an overload for me. I mean, I do believe in a carnivore diet and ketosis. And we talked about that pre-interview and you know that, but I believe in it, like to individualize. And a lot of times it just really just depends on, it depends on your situation. Like if you follow Dr. Stephen Gundry and he has his new book out and he talks about um, mitochondria uncoupling and the benefits of that keto helps with mitochondria uncoupling, right? And he, in the temporary state of ketosis, just if we think about our ancestors, there are times when meat was more readily available and our ancestors would be in a state of ketosis versus times when, you know, fruits and vegetables are more available, right? Our bodies, being in ketosis is like a backup generator, but you don't run your backup generator all the time. 
but having the the availability of switching from running on fat for energy and running on carbs for energy is very important. What do we call it? Metabolic flexibility. In fact, let's take it from a weight management standpoint. Everyone who struggles to lose weight has an inflexible metabolism because when you eat fat, when you eat carbs, your body should have the right amount of enzymes to break down both of those. But if you eat fat and your body cannot break it down and digest it well, there is an issue that may lead to a lot of storage. Your body cannot run on it like it's supposed to. If you eat carbs, that can be the same thing. However, if your metabolism is flexible, where when you eat carbs, you can break it down pretty well, use it for energy. When you eat fats, you can do the same thing. Then you're leading towards metabolic flexibility. Protein is another issue. I've had clients who went on low, had low protein diets, not even on purpose for their entire lives, right? And then when I try to increase their protein, they have bloating and gas and all these issues because they cannot break down protein well, low levels of protease and other enzymes for that, right? So I've had to make changes so they can eventually get to that point because I can't throw them into a high protein diet because their body is not ready for it. But when you can break down all three, when you look at somebody in the gym, let's take out the steroid people, right? But it's the normal people um, who... I trying to come up with a joke there, but you know, I couldn't cover one. So <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe another time, but this, this someone who, you know, who st- doesn't struggle with weight management, builds muscle, looks, you know, what you think of like a healthy fit body. Most of the time it's because they are, met- they are metabolically flexible. If you look at their meals, they eat protein, complex carbs and fiber. And then the fat that comes along with it. And because of how, how they eat, their body has a mechanism to break down all those foods. I had someone reach out to me the other day because her daughter was struggling with what was trying to get into, wants to get a little bit healthy and lose some weight. And then she was, she was saying that I can't find any, any food that's low fat. This is so frustrating. So I had a, because it's a friend of mine, you know, I call her, I talk to her about it. And I said to her, nothing in food in nature just comes low fat. I mean, fruits and vegetables, right? Yeah, that's true. But I'm talking about meat and protein. Like if you if you eat a chicken, unless you take the fat off the chicken, the fat's going to come with the chicken. Now, I'm not saying you right. should eat a lot of fat, right? But just trying to purposely go low fat, you're doing a disservice to your body, you're a disservice to your metabolism. But training your metabolism to become metabolically flexible is very important in weight management. And once you understand this, it will transform your life. And with that being said, Riley, tell my audience, how can they learn more about you and your work? Thank you so much. Yeah. So I have a podcast as well called the gut pharmacist with an F the gut pharmacist podcast, also YouTube, same name, Facebook, same name on Instagram again at gut expert Riley. And then I will have a link in the show notes too, to access my free resources. So I have a free ebook, again, my podcast, YouTube, and you can also apply to work with me there or learn more about what I do. And I also have a free gut archetype quiz, which is something really fun, really quick, and it can help you kind of narrow down the focus for your gut issues. So that will also be in the link, but um, listen to my podcast as well. I had Zico on a while back and uh, just love giving the information and spreading the word of health and wellness. You know, if she had Zico on there, that was a banging podcast, right? Yeah. (laughs) Right. 
probably like a hundred thousand views or something like that. Cause you know, Zico, you know, I'm Zico, but almost a, I guess partly, partly uh, self-absorbed or a narcissist, who knows? But yeah, the sh- so I was, the show notes though, they're going to be ZikaHealth.com slash the gut pharmacist. Pharmacist spelled with an F, not with a PH, because you know, we're just creative like that. I was looking at the original show notes while she was talking and I had it as, uh, I think it was ZikaHealth.com slash Riley Romasco, but we're going to mm-hmm. change it up. And the next one's going to be ZikaHealth.com slash gut pharmacist two, gut, the gut pharmacist three and until we Perfect. run out of numbers. So and with that being said, 100. <laughs> and with that being said, thank you, Riley, for being here. Thanks, everybody, for watching. And we're out of here for today. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining the Matter Over Mind experience. If you got good content out of this or any of my shows, save, subscribe, and share it with anyone who needs this information. Remember, Always take the scenic route and enjoy the ride.